Hey, welcome back, everybody. If you're in the Kansas City area, or if you feel like traveling, October 14th, uh, Saturday, about a month from now, Aaron and I will be doing a meetup at the Buffalo Room at the Westport Flea Market, 817 Westport Road, Kansas City Mo. We start at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and we're going to wrap it up at around 6 p.m. So it's a good five hours to hang out with us. I think we're going to be doing a short talk or episode, and then we're going to just hang out with everyone that shows up. This coming Sunday, uh, listen to a podcast called Continuous Play or the Continuous Play podcast. I talked with those guys over there about John Carpenter's The Thing. So yes, I have other interests outside of true crime and other hobbies I like to do. I'll, I'll probably throw out another reminder after their show's released, but it was a pretty good conversation. On tonight's episode, I speak with Sarah, who happens to work at a psychiatric facility. She talks about her day-to-day. She talks about the stigmas of the patients. I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Shed some light on a part of our society that we don't like to think about. Shed some light on the caretakers who look after us when we're not having the best day or our life might have taken a turn for the worse. She's one of those people that dedicates her life to caring for us. Without further ado, here's Sarah. My name is Sarah. I work at a psychiatric facility. I've been working here for about a year now. I just graduated from college, getting ready to go on to graduate school in this field. My bachelor's degree was in psychology, and I'm getting ready to get my master's in forensic psychology. And that's kind of how I got interested and started working in a psychiatric facility. What's the stereotype of where you work versus reality, I guess? I think a lot of people get their viewpoints from movies and television and things like that of these different psychiatric hospitals. A lot of what movies and television show, I think, are what psychiatric facilities used to be in the 50s and 60s and 70s before they were kind of deinstitutionalized. People walking around in white jumpsuits, lights flickering, whatever you picture when you first say psychiatric facility or mental institution, I think that that's kind of what people imagine in their heads. Even when I talk to my friends about where I work, I know that that's what they're picturing in their heads as well, but it's a completely different environment. All the patients are wearing all their own clothes. They don't have to wear the same thing. It's completely renovated facility, really nice. Everybody has their own room, different areas with TV, like a little kitchen area where people can get some snacks and things like that. Just activities going around the unit. So it's definitely a different view of what you picture or see in movies and television and things like that. That sounds a lot nicer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely is. I know, you know, most movies are just there for the scare factor or something like that, but It's totally different. If you were walking in there, all the staff and patients are all intermingled all the time. So, Mm -hmm. And the patients that are there, what are most of them there for and how long are their stays? The hospital that I specifically work at is an acute care facility. That just means that the average stay is usually under a week, probably around three to five days. 
but we do have some people that are there for much longer. So sometimes we have people there for over 60 days, two months going on. Most of the people that we get have some of the common diagnoses are schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorders, major depression, quite a few people that had just recovered from a suicide attempt. That's most of the people that we get there. With the people who are suffering from schizophrenia, most of them come in trying to seek adjustments on their meds or have had family members brought them in. Bipolar disorder, we get a lot of people who are going through manic episodes. So, you know, at that point, They've been brought in either by themselves or by family or by the police as they're going through this episode. And a lot of the times when they leave, they don't even know what they had done throughout this time. So that's a really interesting thing. And another thing, a lot of people come in like from jail or come in on a 72-hour hold and have been court-ordered to stay at our facility for 72 hours. It's always sad to say if somebody comes in on a weekend or let's say a Friday and they assume that they'll be out by Monday as in true 72 hours, but weekends don't count for those people. So if you come in on a Friday after 5 p.m., those three days that you're there at the hospital don't even count. Your 72 hour won't even start until Monday. And I'm sure that's a wake up call for some of them. They're not very happy. (laughs) Yes, yes. And sometimes it does cause quite a few issues with people that don't realize that you know sometimes we'll get some people acting out once they realize that all this time that they've spent there doesn't even count towards their 72 hour we're also paired with as of now paired with outpatient facilities so a lot of the times when some of the outpatients are needing med adjustments or things like that they usually come through the hospital as well they will come in sort of as an observation status so that just means you're technically still an outpatient just trying to get some things adjusted or see how long you need to stay here that's the general overview of the kind of people that we see in the situations that they're in what should somebody expect when they're brought there by either law enforcement or admitting themselves it's kind of different for depending on the day that you come in. So during the week, it's a lot more therapy intensive, um, and on the weekend, it's a lot more laid back. During a, a typical weekday, all the patients go through a bunch of different activities and therapies and things like that. So the beginning of the day, people will have what we call community meeting, where everybody gets together and talks about a goal for the day and talks about some positive things that they want to happen. And then there's a bunch of different other therapies throughout the day that people can do. So activity therapy is another one where the patients can get together with an activity therapist and they go through different activities like paintings and colorings and a bunch of different stuff like that. Then there's group therapy with social workers getting together as a group talking about your stressors and anxieties and how to overcome those different things that you want to work on before you're discharged. There's cognitive therapy. So that's with the licensed psychologist that we have on staff. That one I think is really helpful and probably the most interesting for patients to really understand how they're thinking about things from more of an unrealistic perspective as in, I can't go on with my life, things like that. Whereas you can go on with your life, you just need to work on some of these things. So thinking in a more realistic perspective, that's a really helpful one for people and I know it sticks with a lot of them. We also have a psychiatrist on staff and she meets with them once a day to go over what they're working on, go over their medications, kind of 
what they're feeling about all these different medications, seeing which ones are working, which ones they need to be changed. There's also a bunch of different groups that are in the evening too. So those are run by the lower staff, so the psychiatric technician, which is what I do. Those are more laid back. So one of them is patient education, mostly learning about different coping skills and things like that. Another group that we do is relaxation, so learning about different relaxation techniques and also an end-of-the-day community meeting, so just talking about whether or not you met your goal for the day, talking about positive things that happened. It's pretty busy throughout the day. They're usually All the patients are usually doing something or have something to do, and then if you come in on a weekend, it's a lot more laid back as most of the other upper staff are not there. So usually on the weekends, it's just a nurse and the techs there. The nurses work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then the techs are there from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Yep. So on the weekends, it's a lot lot more laid back. There's not different groups going on and things like that. More just time to get to know their patients, talk to the nursing staff. What's a tech? So a tech, sorry, <laughs> psychiatric technician. So we just shortened, say, tech. Um, so we kind of do sort of what I like to call the bottom of the totem pole kind of work. One of our like biggest things that takes up the whole time is rounds, is what we call it. So just keeping track of where the patients are. One thing that's not really in our job title, but definitely is a part of our job is janitorial work. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, there may be an accident or something like that where we have to clean up a lot of stuff like that. Just making sure that we're interacting with patients as well. We're kind of the people that go around, just have a conversation with them or play a game with them. Or, you know, a lot of the times when female patients come through, they always want to you know, paint their nails or things like that. So that's another thing that the psychiatric technician or tech kind of does as throughout the day. And not that I want to dwell on it, but I'm sure that some of the people that come in are withdrawing from drugs and whatnot, and that can cause accidents to happen. Yeah, we do get quite a few people that are withdrawing. Although we are not a rehab facility or detox, there are other psychiatric facilities in the area that have other units that include rehab and detox. We don't get as many as other hospitals in the area. Quite a few people that are coming in like that usually sleep a lot, and it's hard to be going through that kind of thing. I can't imagine all the different, the pain and uncomfortableness that they're going through. So a lot of the times they do sleep a lot. But yeah, some accidents like that. There's some other things that some people probably don't realize they're doing. Um, this has never happened to me in particular, but some of my coworkers before I got there have told me stories about patients wiping poop on the walls and <laughs> pooping in the middle of the hallway to get back at somebody. A lot of people from side effects on medications, this is something that I've seen quite a bit. Incontinence is a big side effect on some of these antipsychotics. A lot of people having accidents in the hallway just because they didn't make it to the bathroom on time. Mm -hmm. After working for you know a month or so, you realize that that's just going to be part of the job and that's just one thing that you have to do for these people that don't necessarily have the capacity or know that they're doing these things. Yeah, so. yeah. and I, I know that I have my own misconceptions because I, I watch the movies and the TV shows and, and what you're describing is nothing like what the TV shows show. And even the celebrity rehab that, what's his name, Dr. Drew did, 
I thought that was a more realistic kind of portrayal of, but that was more of a drug rehab situation. But of course, the the cameras would always be drawn to when somebody threw up or when somebody was acting out and they would just focus on that and they wouldn't show the hours of downtime <laughs> you know right. in, in between the events but I'm, I'm sure that you do have some patients that are brought in that don't want to be there right right we actually have quite a few people that do come in and you know some of them you know with 72 hour holds they're ordered there by the court so a lot of the times they don't want to be there and we do get quite a few people that cause issues within the unit, issues with staff, issues with other patients as well. One thing I guess I, I can kind of touch on is risk precautions for patients. As they're going through the admission, a psych nurse is the one who does the admissions. So they will go through and sort of determine what kind of risk precautions these patients should be on. So there's a set of four risk precautions that we have that are just general. There's a self-control risk precaution, so they're put on that if they're unpredictable or you know have mentioned that they are unable to control their temper or things like that. A self-harm risk precaution, so if they had recently attempted suicide or have self-harm impulses or that's sort of a symptom of whatever they're diagnosed with, that they can be placed on that. An injury risk precaution, so if somebody has a history of seizures, they are usually placed on injury risk precaution. And lastly is elopement risk precaution. For that example, if somebody doesn't want to be there, they're usually placed on an elopement risk precaution because the unit is completely locked, so only staff can get in and out of the unit. So if somebody's on an elopement risk precaution, they're not allowed off of the unit. The unit is kind of set up with just the rooms and places to do activities. So there's a dining room downstairs where we usually take all the patients to eat dinner. We can also go outside. There's a place where we can take them where they can play basketball and a bunch of different sports out there. Or just be able to get some sun because it is kind of stuffy up there, as you can imagine. But when people are on elopement, they can't go outside. They can't go down to the dining room for that reason that they don't want to be there. So that's an interesting thing as well because, you know, as, as you're opening doors and things like that, you need to be cautious of people that could potentially escape because some people are, that we have are very strong, very, you know, athletic. And me personally, I don't think I could chase anybody down. So um, <laughs> it'd be kind of hard if, you know, some of these people got out that are on the witness precautions. A lot of people that we do have definitely don't want to be there and have caused problems. And this sounds like it's a standalone facility, not just like a wing in a hospital, correct? It is its own facility. Although some people, I always feel bad. We've had a few people come in the front door thinking that we are a hospital with bad injuries. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, and we're kind of off in the middle of nowhere. We're near a big river just off in the woods. And I always feel so bad when some people come downstairs and, you know, have a broken wrist or something like that, looking for medical help, whereas we're just a psychiatric facility. But so we are just a non, non-for-profit psychiatric facility. And we are associated with, you know, a different management company. So we're not completely standalone, but nothing else is attached to the hospital. Well, when you say non-for-profit, that, that means that you function on donations, you function on uh, different things such as that, correct? Yeah, and funding from the different management companies. So right now we're actually in a transition to a new management company. Most of our funding comes from that. And obviously the patients still do have to pay, but we don't 
It's more in the sense that we don't need patients to continue running. Other psychiatric facilities in the area, you know, have to hit a quota or, you know, want more people to come in so they can make the money that they need or can pay their employees. So for us, if we have one patient, it's okay. We don't need other people to come in. All of us can still work. It's not totally dependent on the number of patients we have. I don't want to go off topic, but that seems weird to me. I would assume that psychiatric patients would be the least likely ones able to pay a bill. And I would assume that medical bills are typically the last bill most people pay, no matter what their ailment is. <laughs> so I don't know. Is that true? Am I wrong in that thinking? So I think you're totally right. But I would say probably 90% of the people that we have are insured by Medicaid. Okay. Yeah. So Medicaid usually pays most of these hospital visits. Mm -hmm. So they're insured. So they're covered. Yep. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, there is that small 10%, and I will say I'm really not sure how they pay these kind of bills because just as any other hospital, although we're not, you know, attached with an ER and things like that, but it is an expensive stay to be here. So, yeah, for those small percentage that are not insured, I always wonder, you know, how they pay or especially if they're sort of there against, not against their will, but, you know, for a 72-hour detention sort of situation, you know. Yeah. They're here for this long. How do they pay for this many nights, you know, so. And they're like, hey, I was told to be here. What? <laughs> you you yeah, pay for exactly. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, if I was ever sent somewhere for 72 hours against my will, I don't think I would be real apt to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, up. I would not either. <laughs> yeah, I always wonder about that, but I, I'm, I'm never on that side of the working Thing. I, there's uh, somebody else that's in charge of all the payments, making sure that we're getting all of that. So I've seen my brother go in for a 72-hour hold. Uh, mm -hmm. When I did my police ride-along, we went to a house. The neighbors had called and said the guy was ranting and raving, and this, I guess, is a normal, commonplace occurrence. And the, the officer showed up and um, talked him down. At some point, he said he probably would harm himself. So they were very kind to him. They they said, okay, well, we're going to have to take you to the hospital. You you know that, right? And he's like, yes. And they're like, we have to put you in the squad car and we have to handcuff you. And he said, could you handcuff me in the front at least? And they said, no problem. And then we took him to the hospital and he walked in and he was on a first name basis with the admitting nurses. <laughs> and it, it was not chaotic. It was not what you see on TV. It was just very... They informed him what was going to happen. They placed him in the squad car. We drove him to the hospital, and the hospital took him in. And it was just very organized, actually. And I was not surprised, but kind of. <laughs> That's something that I, I really want to change people's view about because, I again, like I said, you know, their only experience with these kind of facilities is what you read about or what you see in television and things like that where it is completely different. You know, there, there are hard days. And those hard days really get you sometimes, but most of the time it's really calm. Everybody's just there. Everybody is, you know, working together. They're all just people. It's not something that you go in and you separate yourself from each other because there's this big elephant in the room of you have a mental illness and I'm here to help you. But it's more just, you know, we're all people. We're all around here talking to each other, getting to know each other. It's just not at all what it's what it looks like to outside people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I have to admit that I've been guilty most of my life, even with family members and friends that suffer. I had my own prejudices, and it's slowly taken 30, 40 years for me to get over those and to understand that a lot of people aren't, they're not consciously choosing to do this. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is almost an involuntary action that they cannot help, and we need to help. That's a, an interesting point to um, bring up because, you know, a lot of these people will act out and, you know, I've been hit a few times, pushed over. Some of my coworkers have gone through much worse, but you kind of have to just move past it and realize that this is a part of their mental illness and not a part of them as a person. So getting to know these people is super important and knowing that, you know, some of the things that they're doing is not purposeful. They don't know it. If you tell them about it after they have come back to reality or come out of this state, they will apologize profusely saying, you know, I, I'm not usually like that. I can't believe I did that to you. That's kind of a really big thing. You kind of have to come, come over, cross that bridge as you uh, start working in a place like this is realizing the difference between somebody acting out against you and somebody's mental illness acting out against you. So, so you'd mentioned there's better days than others and there's some bad days. I know even in the podcasting world, there's better days than others, <laughs> um, but I'm sure that my worst day is not even close to your worst day. But do you want to uh, share a, a bad day? I wrote down some patients that I have some interesting stories about and some bad days. I can sort of share some stories. I'm going to try and use the first letter of their first name so I don't give away any identities, but I can start off from the very beginning. When I first started training at this hospital, they were telling me horror stories of things that kind of happened to, you know, prepare me for what I could expect or see, you know, in a, in a day while working. One of the stories, first they started off saying, you know, people have committed suicide here. That's why we installed camera systems and things like that, because, you know, those kind of things do happen. Now the security is much better. We also check on patients a lot more often than they did before. So that hasn't happened since I've been there, but that has happened. So I can't imagine, you know, that, you know, that day, imagine the staff there and then they check on the patient and they have committed suicide in their care. And then having to come back to work the next day, just as if that didn't happen. That's something that I always try and think about as working here now, just lucky that, that I haven't gone through something like that. You know, my worst day is not even nearly as bad as that person's worst day. Another, another sort of scare story that they used, this was about 10 years ago, I believe, at the same hospital. A patient was very, very delusional. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and she had some sort of delusion about demons and things inside of her. That's about the extent I know about it because I didn't work with her. One day while she was in her bathroom, she hadn't been checked for about 15 minutes, she comes out of her bathroom and knocks on the nurse's station door and has her own eyeball in her hand. She had pulled out her own eyeball from her eye socket oh, no. in the bathroom. Oh. And put it to the staff, and she completely flat affect, didn't seem to show any pain, and didn't say much when she brought it to them. And, you know, staff not kind of realizing what was going on just kind of stood there and stared at her for a minute, you know, missing an eye, the eye in her hand. 
that was kind of one of those scary stories that they tell to try to prepare you for what you might see in a place like this. So that was my first day of training, hearing those kind of stories. Yeah. They set you up for the worst. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Disclaimer, that woman is still alive and well. She has a glass eye now and is doing just fine. She still is out in and out of mental hospitals, but that did not cause anything other than just a glass eye. <laughs> that same day when I was first training, they called a code. So there's an intercom system throughout the hospital. And different codes mean different things. This particular code was code white, which means that everyone that is trained in um, CPI, which is crisis prevention, and that just means if, if somebody is acting out or anything and, and the staff that's there is unable to handle it themselves, they call a code white so that everybody that's trained in this can come in and help with the situation, try and calm it down. So my first day in training, that code was called, and I was obviously not trained at this point. It was my first day. So I stayed back while everyone else was heading to the unit. There's other places in the hospital, so where I was at was where sort of the upper-level upper staff uh, sit throughout the day. So the social workers, director of nursing, the staff that I was with, she was sort of the trainer, so she trained all the incoming techs, nurses, and things like that. The psychiatrist, psychologist, those kind of people are in a separate area of the building. All of them get called and go down to the unit. And I was sitting there by myself, not knowing what was going on. A couple minutes later, the staff member that I was with comes back and tells me to head to the unit because one of the patients had just been restrained and she wanted me to see it. That's another thing that is a lot different than what you see in movies and television. Nowadays, there are not any bed restraints. In television and things like that, I feel that most of the time when people are being restrained in a hospital, you see them you know, being strapped to a bed and unable to get up from that bed for hours on end. But we have what's called a restraint chair, so it's a lot easier to get them into. The chair is mobile, so we can wheel it over to somebody and just pop them down. And you know, there are sort of straps around them and things like that, but it's a lot different. More comfortable, too, than being strapped to a bed. Yeah, and you have to move them around possibly to give them treatment or whatever, so you can't roll a bed around as quite as easy as a chair, so that makes sense. So she had been restrained. I'll call her patient T. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She was going through a manic episode, and that's why she had been admitted. She was very, very religiously preoccupied, would continuously talk about religion that she talked to God. She would carry around her Bible and a cross with her. And I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but, you know, swing a cross at people. And she would just be yelling prayers around the unit and things like that. So she had been restrained because somebody had said Jesus in not a good way. And so she became very upset, was um, becoming aggressive with this other person. So patient T was restrained. She was in the chair, and there's a seclusion room on the unit. So once we get somebody in the chair, we roll the chair over to the seclusion room. In that room, it's just kind of closed off. When somebody's in the chair, we have to take their vitals every 15 minutes to make sure they're doing okay, sort of record what they're doing every 15 minutes as well. So there's sort of a checklist, like if people are yelling, trying to get out of the restraints, crying, or you know, at some point sleeping. She was put in the chair, and the staff member came and got me. 
took me over there to kind of see how they did it, see where they brought her, what, what kind of stuff that they were doing. She told me to check her pulse. At this time, we didn't have what we call now the nurse on a stick. So that little thing that you see in, in your doctor's office that takes your blood pressure, your pulse, and your yeah. temperature all on this little mm-hmm. cart thing. So we did all of our vitals manually at this point. I was trying to take her pulse, which is under one of the restraints around her wrist, and she had bitten me. So this is my first day. I was Ooh. training, saw a restraint, and then got bitten by a patient. But I came back the next day, and I was excited about continuing to work. That was kind of sort of an all-encompassed what, what to expect working here. Trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't, luckily, she didn't break my skin or anything. Um, it was hard for her to even get to me. I just was naive. I had pretty much asked her to do it. I had put my arm close to her head, whereas I should have you know, gone from the front and taken her pulse, but I was standing next to her, so my arm was really close to her head. That was kind of me being a little naive. That day was not as bad as other days that I've had, but definitely not what I was expecting on my first day to deal with. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get it. And I wouldn't say that you asked her to do it, but you just didn't take the appropriate precautions. And that's all. (laughs) Yeah, I've got quite a few other people to talk about. I wrote kind of down patients that sort of made a big impact on me. These are people that were there for longer than that typical three to five day. They were a lot sicker than, you know, what we typically see. And those are the kind of people that stick with you. You know, you want to hear back from them or know what they're doing after they leave. And it's hard because, you know, you can't talk to them. And obviously that's weird to strike up a relationship with a patient, but sometimes these people really stick with you and you you want to know how they're doing after. This next patient, I'll call her patient C, when she came in, she was completely catatonic, unresponsive. She wouldn't even look at you while you were talking. And if she did, she would start shaking vigorously. Like she was seeing something that you weren't as if I was a monster or something, she would start staring at me like that. And it was a scary thought because you wondered, what is she looking at? Or what is she seeing while you're standing there? You know, as she was completely catatonic, she couldn't do things for herself. It was hard for her to eat. She would kind of stare at her food for a long time before ever taking a bite of food. She couldn't use the bathroom. So we had to get her to the bathroom every time and this was something also that you know you never expect in a job title when you go in but you know we had to wipe her and things like that because she couldn't do it for herself and that's one of those humbling moments I guess you know when you like thinking back on your day and you think you know I, I just did that for somebody and and they needed it and you kind of feel good about the work that you're doing for these people because if we weren't there then she would just be sitting at home you know not going to the bathroom, sitting in her own feces or whatever, you know, and not being able to do anything about it. So that's one of those times, you know, although not what you want to do when you go to work or what you expect when you go to work, after you do it, you know, in the time being, it's not fun, but you feel good about it after. That's very honorable for you to say. I mean, this, that was your feel good moment is I did something good and it's the most, uh, what people would consider dirtiest job in, in, in your day. But that's yeah. what made you feel good is knowing that if you weren't there, then this wouldn't have been accomplished. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's so true. If, if we weren't there, she she wouldn't have been able to. She had a, a lay caregiver, which is exactly what you think it is, somebody who was there to help them. And, you know, even with them, she was struggling to keep up with the amount of assistance that patient C needed. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to be able to do this kind of stuff for her, although it was not fun at the time. No, no. She would also show very odd behaviors. She would talk to a TV for a very long time. We kind of thought that maybe she was under the impression that the TV was kind of talking to her maybe, but it was hard to tell because she, although she would talk to the TV, she would not talk to any staff, wouldn't talk to other patients either. So it was really hard to kind of gauge that behavior. Also, she would be walking down the hallway and then sort of lie on the ground and just lie there for a while. Not that our floors are dirty, but you don't want to be lying on the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... We always had to go get her up. And, you know, it was also to the point where, you know, it's blocking other patients from getting around the unit and things like that. So you can't be lying on the floor. So it was always really difficult to get her up as well because she. it looked like she was seeing her worst fear. She would start shaking, like I said. She was so, so internally focused on something, it was really hard to gauge what was going on. It's really difficult for us to get her up off the floor or even be near her because it was kind of scary. The look that she would give people, it was, it was like she was seeing something completely different than what you were. You're just going off the body read, and she right. looks terrified, so exactly. ter- terrified people can lash out. Mm-hmm. She was much bigger than most of us. I weigh 130 pounds and she weighed 340 pounds. Mm-hmm. If she had come at me, I would I would have no no way of protecting myself. All I know, she could have seen me coming at her with a knife or something, you know, something just terrifying to her. And we had no idea what she was ever thinking or feeling at that moment. So those are those are kind of scary moments and she was there for about 50 days, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. She was a long time it was difficult for her again to use the bathroom to shower as well so we would have to shower her and it was hard to encourage her to do it because you know one thing about psychiatric facilities although probably me and you shower every day or every other day and it's just part of the day showering is a really difficult thing for some of these people I'm not sure what it is about showering but it's really hard for some of these people so she was one of those people that showering was just really difficult Every few days we were able to get her in the shower, but that was another thing. As the weeks went on that she was there, she slowly, slowly came back to reality and was able to have conversations with us. After about half the time that she was there, she would start singing on the unit. And it was really cool to kind of see that change in her because as she came back to reality, she became happier too. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could see that while she was singing or just smiling rather than staring at us with that horrified look. Yeah, just not knowing what's happening, and yeah, absolutely. She was one that really stuck with all of us, and we haven't seen her since, mm-hmm. so that's a good sign. A lot of these people come back on multiple occasions. We see a lot of the same people all the time. What, so. what is that? R- recidivism rate, I think? Maybe I'm mispronouncing it. <laughs> um, recidivism, yeah. Kind, yeah, I guess it is kind of like that. Um, yeah, we get a lot of people that come back and come back and come back, and it's sad to see, but it's it's good to know that we're at least there for them because, you know, if we weren't there, where would they be ending up? Is there a term that you use for patients that are there for over 30 days or 60 days? Are they like the old schoolers or anything? (laughs) 
So um, we don't have a term for people that stay long, but for people that are come back very often, we call them frequent flyers. So it kind of it sounds a little derogatory, but you know, one, one thing I had forgotten to mention that I think it's kind of important to say, if any of the staff or you know, me in this time that I'm talking to you, if we ever are laughing at something or sort of making a joke like frequent flyers, it's never at the expense of a patient. It's always just to bring laughter and joy into a job that doesn't have much in it on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's also so one thing that I can talk about a little bit later is burnout rate. So, you know, if you're not if you're not enjoying some aspects of the job or bringing light to some things, it's really hard not to get burnout and kind of want to leave or not want to be a part of that workforce anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's true with any job, but especially when it comes to anything where you're interacting with pretty much the public and you're having to take the brunt of that. And I don't, I don't care if that's a nurse at a psychiatric hospital or a cop on the street or <laughs> whatever it is. I mean, there's, there's a burnout rate with that. Yeah. So laughing at things, you know, again, like I said before, a lot of these people don't know that they're doing these kind of things. And once they realize that they've done it, they profusely apologize and laugh at themselves sometimes too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if there's ever laughter, it, it's always just to bring joy or just laugh about sometimes how, how crazy, you know, some of these days are never at the expense of a patient. Well, I mean, Hey, parents laugh at their kids for doing something funny or weird. I mean, it's, it just, it's, human nature to try to rationalize what's happening and when it's something absurd it, it just happens I, I would hope that people would just be like hey it's how you get through your day but you're not ever teasing or doing it directly to a patient mm -hmm. another patient i'll call him patient l he is kind of what we call frequent flyer he is on commitment to us so when a patient is on commitment, if they're refusing their medications, they are forced to be readmitted and they are given injections. When people are on commitment, it's court ordered. Usually sometimes people will come in on a 72-hour hold and at the end of the 72 hours they have a court hearing. Dependent on our psychiatrist, she determines whether or not this person should be on commitment to us, that we should be forcing their medications, or if they're good to go or just need a few more days here sort of determining, you know, what is the extent of their mental illness and what kind of help do they need. This person was on commitment to us, so if he refused his medications, again, he comes back and gets injections and stays until they feel that he's more lucid, more attached to reality. He was bipolar as well. He was very manic at this time, expressing delusional beliefs about himself, very grandiose beliefs, so thinking that he's in charge of everybody, believing that he has a connection to God, things like that. The day that he came in, he needed his injections. That was the day that he was refusing his medications. This was a really sad story to me because although he was he was a really small guy, he, he was really strong, athletic, but he was so against getting this injection. He did not want it and he was putting up a fight for it. Luckily, no one got hurt. What we had to do was a medical hold. Whatever way possible, we had to get him restrained. Usually we would put them in a chair, but he was he sort of backed himself up into a corner, so it was difficult to get the chair over there, and there were so many staff in the area. It was just easier to then just grab him in any way possible. At this point, he had was putting up a fight. He really didn't want it. Some people had tried to get him, but he just wasn't cooperating. Then one of the male staff just kind of, went after him, grabbed him as easily as he could, but it was still really difficult. It took about seven minutes to finally get him on the ground, 
all extremities were held, legs, arms, and everything. So he wasn't harming himself or any staff. At that point, he was still yelling and screaming, but he did get the injection. After he got the injection, he just broke down. It was really awful. He started bawling, saying that he wasn't sick. He didn't need these things, that we were doing this against his will. And that was a hard, a hard day because those are the kind of people that at some point they, they realize in their head that they, they, they need this help, but are just so resistant to it. And it was just really sad to see his breakdown like that after putting up such a fight. And it just seemed he felt like he had failed himself in getting this medicine. And it was, that was a really hard day. But, you know, the next day he was lucid, attached to reality, wasn't expressing delusional beliefs. It, it ended up good. He, he did get the medication that he needed. Another patient, I'll call him patient D. Patient D is also a frequent flyer. He's here often. He's actually been here quite recently and has been discharged and then come back the next day because his family doesn't see he's still okay to come back. He's what I would call the textbook schizophrenia uh, patient. Completely disorganized. His thinking is so out there, it's even hard to say a statement that he would say. <laughs> and it's one of those things, like, because we think so realistically and so organized, it's like you can't even come up with the kind of statement that he would say. He has complete flat affect as well, so doesn't really express very much emotion running around all the time just doing the strangest things. One night he was drawing all the clocks on the unit. He was having a really hard time drawing the clocks because they kept changing. The minute hand kept moving. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Other times, you know, I've seen him completely changing the furniture in his room around all day long for no apparent reason. I've also seen him just standing in his shower for hours on end, not doing anything. So who knows what was going on in his mind. He's also very religiously preoccupied. He's stood and read his Bible for hours on end. And also one thing, one thing that he does is take diligent notes on everything anybody says. So whatever he can find, napkins, scrap pieces of paper, styrofoam from his dinner trays, he will take diligent notes on them. If you say something to him, he says, I need to write that down. <laughs> very, very interesting person to work with. He's also very catatonic at times, so completely unresponsive, not changing his facial expression at all. He recently had gotten discharged, never made it home, was arrested for trespassing, spent the night in jail, and then came right back the next day. No. That is, <laughs> he is a very, very sick individual. And it's interesting that we're talking today. Last night, I had a pretty difficult night with patient D. So when people first get admitted, they have to take off all their clothes to do contraband search. We've had some people bring in drugs and try to hide them and things like that. Had some people been successful with it, especially with visitors. If people have a family member coming in, they will try and bring in different drugs and things like that. We have to have them strip down their clothes and we wash them too in case of bed bugs or anything like that. This particular patient, D, he was not being cooperative. He was completely catatonic when he came in. He wasn't changing his clothes, and he wasn't responding to us prompting him to change his clothes. He was what we call one-to-one. -one. So when people are one-to-one, -one, you have to be within arm's reach of that patient at all times. So one staff member has to be with this one patient within arm's reach at all times. Those are always hard days when we have people like that because even if somebody isn't responding to you, even if you're just sitting there next to them the whole shift and they don't move, 
it's very exhausting just being with one person the entire time. I was encouraging him to change his clothes, trying to talk to him. He wasn't responding very much, but I suggested one thing that if I stand outside of his bathroom and he was in his bathroom and I couldn't close the door, but I wouldn't have to look at him and he could just take off his clothes and then he could just hand them to me. He kind of agreed to it. He shook his head yes, so I thought that he was kind of at least listening to me and understanding what I was saying. I stand outside the bathroom. Um, I have my foot in the door so he can't close it on his own. But of course he tried. Then he realized what was going on, he, that my foot was in the door. Kicked my leg trying to get my foot outside the door and then had pushed me down. Again, I'm, <laughs> I don't weigh very much. I'm kind of short. <laughs> so I don't have much strength against some of these people. And so he sort of wrestled me to the ground trying to grab all the towels and uh, shampoo and soap I had for him in my hands. I was trying to keep them so he wouldn't get back in the bathroom. I had landed on another patient asleep in that same room. This other patient was, I'm not sure what was going through his head, but he asked if I could get somebody else to come deal with him. And I, and you know, as he's on top, as patient D is on top of me. So I'm thinking, well, can you try and go get somebody else? Because I'm kind of in the middle of a fight with patient D. Eventually, you know, we, we got him changed. He showered and everything like that. The other patient had got somebody and we both were able to get him changed. But that was kind of a scary, scary time. You, you were definitely in a situation where you were vulnerable and you, you needed a backup. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to you know get help and we got him changed. He's been interesting to work with, especially after you go through a bunch of schooling and read about these people. And then, you know, you see somebody that's suffering with this mental illness and you kind of see how, how these symptoms play out in different people. I hope that the listeners think that you're doing a decent job with explaining some of the more odd behaviors because it's the odd behaviors that people find scary, but right. they're, they're happening a lot and they're not always scary. It's only scary when you're in harm's way and that's... Right. Most of the time I'm able to kind of brush it off because sometimes some of their behaviors are very intimidating. You're not sure what's going to happen next because sometimes this behavior happens and then you get attacked. But I always try and stay as calm as possible. But I know it is kind of hard to um, visualize as I'm describing some of these things, but I hope that I am explaining enough to oh, kind oh, of visualize it. No, no, I, I, I totally have a vision of it <laughs> or an image. <laughs> good, good. I've just got a few more, but yeah. the next one, patient A, she was there for over 70 days, a really, really long stay. She had been a businesswoman. She had been diagnosed early on, but was treated, and she hadn't really had much of a psychotic break since she had been diagnosed. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was on an antipsychotic called Clozeril. She was on a really high dosage, 250 milligrams, and by the time she left our hospital, we had only worked her back up to 75 milligrams, and she was a lot better. So that tells you kind of how big of a dosage she was on. She had come to us because she was doing so well. She had written a book, full-time job, living a normal life. Her insurance cut her off from getting her medications. She had lost the money to pay for this antipsychotic and then again went right back into what she was like when she was first diagnosed, which is really sad because this person has been functioning on this medication and then the insurance cuts her off and now she's completely lost it, completely disconnected from reality. That really upsets me. 
<laughs> more than you probably think it should. I mean, that's the whole point. Insurance to cover things that people need, not want, but they right. need to function. I, I understand that they don't want to cover, oh, that's a brand name, not a generic and, and whatnot. But this is the one thing that's keeping her stable. Mm -hmm. And they just cut her off. Yep. It was really, really sad. And eventually we did get her insurance back in check and told them what was going on. And now that this has happened, she has completely gone off the rails. And again, like I said, she was on such a high dosage. It, it was just crazy that they could even make the make the judgment that she doesn't need it anymore. The only thing I can describe her as is word salad. That's a term. It's really even hard to describe with this patient, too, because we think so realistically. It's hard to even come up with a sentence that's what we would consider word salad. I even tried coming up with a sentence with my coworkers, and all of us were just at a loss for words because we couldn't think of one one sentence that encompassed what she kind of did. It was very strange, just a string of words that didn't connect at all. There was no association between them. And at the end of every sentence, she would kind of ask if we knew what she meant. And of course, we had no idea because it was completely nonsensical, illogical, all of those things. And it was really hard to connect with her. But you're she, listening. You're, you're yeah. attentive. <laughs> Yeah. I always tried to just pick the last word that she said and kind of ask her about that. And then, of course, it would be, again, a complete sentence of nonsense. But at least I was engaging her in give and take. <laughs> but she was also one to one. She was drinking things that she should not be drinking. Shampoo and things like that. Uh, about, what, what, what is the food disorder? Is like pica or something where they eat anything? Yeah. Yeah. She was really eating whatever, drinking whatever. She tried to flood our unit at one point. So she put all of her clothes and towels that she had in her room in her toilet and just continuously flushed it. So her bathroom flooded, her room flooded. Luckily, it wasn't the whole unit at this point. And, and she also would stare at other patients and kind of creep them out because she wasn't saying anything, wasn't doing anything, just staring at them. Being with her was also very exhausting. The one-to-one -one is to prevent them from hurting themselves, really. And I mean, you're, you're trying to keep them alive. If she's trying to drink a whole bottle of shampoo, that could, that could be really bad. <laughs> yeah, most people that get on one-to-one -one have either acted out against an, another patient, maybe disrobing a lot, so running around the unit naked. A lot of people are on one-to-one -one for that. If they're self-harming or have been trying to self-harm, they're on one-to-one. -one. At the end of the, her discharge, she was on 75 milligrams of Clozeril, which wasn't even close to what she was on before, she was a lot better. She sometimes sometimes would slip up and not make a little bit of sense, but you could have a conversation with her. It was completely based in reality, and she was just so much better. She was able to shower on her own again, do everything like a normal person would do, um, wasn't showing any of those odd behaviors anymore. So that was you know, a happy ending to that, just a really, really long process for her. Right now we have somebody, patient H, she has been here for about two months now. And the whole time that she's been here, she has not showered. Luckily, she I'm not sure how she's doing it, but she doesn't smell that bad. <laughs> we do get a lot of smelly patients. I feel like if I didn't shower for a week, I would be stinking up the whole place. But she doesn't smell that bad, which is good. She is extremely depressed. She lies in bed pretty much all day. No matter how much we try and engage her, encourage her to come out of bed, talk to her, she kind of denies it. 
she doesn't come to very many groups either. It's really hard to encourage her to do these kind of things because after so much encouragement, there's not much else we can do. This patient in particular is kind of important to show the staff side of side of things. Seems neglectful that she's lying in bed all day and that she isn't being engaged by people all the time. To some extent, there's not much else that we can do. No matter how many times we've tried to engage her in conversation, tried to get her out of bed, at some point it's like doing something against somebody's will. You know, if we tried to pull her out of bed, obviously we can't do things like that. And it, no matter what we've tried to do to encourage her, she did not ever come out of bed. That one's a little sadder story. She eventually was sent to a state hospital. When people that we can't help eventually are sent to a state hospital where it's more of a long, supposed to be a long-term stay, whereas we're supposed to be acute care, although, you know, I'm going through quite a few people that have had longer stays. But yeah, that's one of those things that I think it's important to see the other side of it. Yeah, and, and when you've exhausted your avenues of care, then you move them up the chain so they can yeah. get the care they need. Exactly. That's good to um, hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this next one, another patient H, he was sent to us from jail. He was very catatonic, not saying much. We didn't even get an admission complete from him because he wouldn't respond to any questions. But we have a room called the interview room where we usually do most the admissions and things like that. Once the sheriff got him into the room, sat him down, took his shackles off, he did not move from his chair for 36 hours. He was just frozen there or did he move? No, just sat in the same position for 36 hours. So we didn't get him changed, obviously, because he wasn't cooperating with us. Same situation with patient D. Patient H was one-to-one -one because he wasn't changing his clothes. Lately, we have, at the hospital, we have been pretty short-staffed. I had worked 11 to 7, and then that same day, 3 to 11. So I was with him for about 12 hours, just sitting next to him. He wasn't saying much. Sometimes he would start, like, drumming a little bit with his feet and then start humming. Sometimes I could, I could catch the song, and then I'd start singing it with him, and then he would stop. I was trying any way I could to connect with him, try and break through whatever, whatever was going on in his head to get him to cooperate with us. It was very smelly in that room because he was also not moving while he was pissing himself. He was sitting in his own feces yeah. uh, for this long. So, and he wasn't eating or drinking either. So at some point, I wasn't sure how he was still going to the bathroom, but it was very interesting sitting with him. He was also doing a lot of things that kind of, it reminded me what, what I assume people think the patients I work with are like. So he would do very odd things with his mouth and his tongue. He would just stare at me and show me all of his teeth in a really aggressive manner. It wasn't like a growl, but it was... It's hard to describe, but, and he would do that for 15 minutes without moving, just showing me his teeth. Just like a was, grimace. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very weird. And then he would start doing weird things with his tongue, like moving it around and all kinds of weird, weird motions, and then would just be drooling all over the place and not, not really even phase him that he's doing all these things. At some point, you know, that kind of stuff kind of reminded me like a scary movie, and I really thought that he was going to come up and come attack me or something. It was He was very, very strange. After about 36 hours, though, while he was in that chair, at some point he did become more lucid towards the end of it. I was trying to talk to him. I was more talking at him because he wasn't being very responsive. But he did start talking, although he was delusional. So he thought that I was his ex-wife. 
and he was asking me things about their personal history and obviously I have no idea. I kept trying to ground him back to reality, not necessarily saying he's being delusional, but trying to talk about things around the room or telling him that we should get in the shower, get changed, everything like that. But eventually after he kind of maybe trusted me because he thought I was his ex-wife, eventually he just said, I trust you. And then I just kind of got up and thought this is my chance. And so I walked over to him and I grabbed his hand and then we walked to the shower. Then he just took, took off all his clothes and showered. It was very weird because it just came out of nowhere. But that was kind of a victory moment for me because everybody had been complaining of the smell and saying they didn't, they didn't want to sit with him because he had been pooping and peeing all over the place and completely catatonic. You couldn't even talk to him. So that was kind of a victory that I was able to get him in the shower, not really knowing what, what had gone through his head that he trusted me, but that was an interesting moment. And he was probably talking to you like his ex-wife because that's probably the only person he's really had in his life. Exactly. He was there for a while and he was going back to jail after, but he continued to show signs of odd behavior. He still wasn't in reality. It was just that moment that I I was able to get to him. But one day I had walked into his room just checking on him, doing rounds. He looked like he was pooping himself in his bed. So I told him, you know, hey, let's go to the bathroom and do this instead. He wasn't listening to me and he continued to look at me with that forceful pushing look. And all of a sudden he puts his hand in his pants and pulls out a soap bar. So he had put a soap bar up his butt and then pooped it out in front of me. Not not what you were expecting. <laughs> no, I was not expecting that to come out. I, I don't think anyone would, but... No. Eventually he was sent back to jail and he was a lot better, definitely more gra- grounded in reality, so... Do you know why um, he was in jail for? I don't remember. Usually that stuff is in their paperwork. He had moved to the area to be with his nephew. He had a nephew that they had recently lost their father, so he had come by to help them out and... I think something, it, it definitely had to do with his mental illness. I, I mean, whatever it was, I'm, going to jail is supposed to be a punishment for you doing something wrong. And I always say, hey, you know, when we put somebody behind bars, we should be trying to reform them also. But that's never a point to putting somebody behind bars. It's always punishment. Does this guy have any concept of what he did was wrong? And does he have any concept that being behind bars is a punishment? I mean, are we, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> it's my Right. That's, that's something that I kind of want to get into. We see a lot of people from jail and it's, it's really sad because these people aren't getting the help that they need. The circumstances that they're put in in prison make them even worse. I don't think that many people come out of prison being better. The things that they have to do to stay alive or stay away from people, stay out of conflict in prison or are much worse than what they should be dealing with. I think that's an important thing to think about these people that are going through prison or these conditions aren't what they should be going through. I I know my brother was uh, in and out of jail cells and holding cells all the time. And, you know, one of the times he was in the middle of the road in some stage of undress i think he even had a knife on him at at some point and they arrest him and they put him in a jail cell and he's ranting and raving about things that don't make sense and i'm just thinking why what are we accomplishing here (laughs) like this isn't if somebody is arrested under these circumstances there's a place like where i work to get them instead of leaving them in jail for no reason at all I just have two more people that I (laughs) have made sort of an impact on me as I've worked there. So one more person, patient L, 
this one was probably one of my worst days. I had a few nightmares after it. It was really disturbing. He was on a self-harm precaution. We checked him every 15 minutes rather than every hour, but a lot can happen in 15 minutes. In between checks, he had made a shank, I guess, out of his toothbrush and dug pretty much a hole into his arm. He had gotten blood, and I mean blood like horror movie, all over his bathroom. And then for the next round of checks, we had found him self-harming. It was the most horrific thing I have ever seen. I've never seen that much blood. And in the manner that it was in the bathroom, I mean, it was like somebody had like poured buckets of blood all over everything. It had gotten so high up on the wall. It was like he was trying to put on a show. I can't even describe what it looked like other than horror movie scene. On my shift, we don't have janitorial staff. Me and the nurse had to go in and clean it up. It took about two hours to really get all the blood cleaned up and it, it was just something I had I had never seen before. I had never seen that much blood. Blood doesn't usually upset me or make me nauseous or anything like that, but that day I mean it was I just had never seen that much. Yeah, yeah. Sadly I've seen a lot too and it makes me wince uh and every time. I can watch movies like horror movies and I know it's fake. It doesn't really bother me that much, but when it comes to real life, I mean hell, I watch UFC and MMA when I see two guys beating the crap out of each other and one starts spewing blood i turn away <laughs> that's yeah, you know yeah. that's the thing i like to watch and i can't really stand watching the blood there because i know it's real and it yeah. takes on a whole different connotation it was weird too because the the little hole he had dug in his arm was not that it was not that big it wasn't like he hit an artery or anything like that it was just so shocking how much blood and how he got it everywhere too. I mean, it was 360 around the bathroom. Still to this day, I don't know how he did that, how he got it to look like that, but it was horrifying. And cleaning it up really was the yeah. was the hard part. But that was one of those things the next few days I had to go into work. I kind of stayed to myself a little bit, didn't engage people as much just because I was a little bit nervous. Now I, I'm feeling okay about it. It's not something that has bugged me since then. I mean, it's just part of the job, but it was just something I never expected. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, you say in 15 minutes time, he's able to make a shank out of a toothbrush. I mean, this, this is yeah. diligent. He's going for it. He's yeah. He's got a plan. So, I mean, 15 minutes is a long time, but wow, he, he got a lot accomplished in that amount of time. Yeah, it's scary to think how much you can do in 15 minutes. You know, it doesn't seem like a long time, but then when you think about something like that, I mean, it is kind of a long time. The last patient that I wanted to talk about was somebody that still sticks with me today. Again, another patient age. He was a younger guy, early 20s. My age, really nice guy. He had, he had a lot going for him. He was like a star athlete in high school. He was prom king. Everything was going for him. And then, you know, after high school, he had his first psychotic break. Whatever college he was attending, he couldn't continue. His mom was always supportive there to help him, but it was really, really sad. It was one of those people that you kind of relate with and think, oh, this is somebody I probably would have been friends with in high school or talked to, and now this is where he is and this is what he's ended up. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he was more aggressive than most people with schizophrenia that I see. He would often run around the unit naked, masturbating. It was really hard to stop him. He punched staff a few times. And he was like 6'5", super athletic, really toned, strong. So, you know, it was hard to stop him too. 
he was very aggressive, acted out against other patients as well. He was put on one-to-one. He, one day I was with him on one-to-one and he would continuously masturbate and disrobe. And he did that quite often and it was hard to stop. I just kind of looked away, didn't really try and do much about it. He was making sexual remarks and it got a little bit uncomfortable. So I tried to tell him, you know, this isn't appropriate. You shouldn't be saying these kind of things. You're doing these kind of things in front of staff and you know that trying to encourage him to stop. But at some point he grabbed my arm and pulled me into his bathroom and tried to take off my shirt. Luckily there was like a moment of weakness that I was able to run out. You know, you're not supposed to leave somebody one-to-one without a staff member. But at that point I thought, you know, I can't, I can't be in here anymore. You got to save yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I was getting close to like a sexual assault and nobody would see me because the bathrooms don't have cameras. So the point where he was taking off my shirt and I was able to get out of there, I, I ran as fast as I could. That was probably one of my worst days at work. That was a little bit harder to come back from because that was the closest I'd ever been to something like that. Days like that happen at work. Like these people still stick with you and you still want to know where they end up how they're doing because you know that that wasn't him, that was his mental illness. That day was probably the worst day I had had. Hard to come back, but you know, I still continue my job as, as needed. Do you ever get your own mental health days? Whenever I have days off, I try and just do things for myself. I try and not think about work, just do what I want to do to relax and things like that. Especially as I move forward, in the field, in my education, it's going to continue to get harder. I think one really important thing, if you work in these kind of fields, is just to have a day for yourself. Just do things that make you happy or make you relaxed. I've seen a ton of turnover. In the year that I've worked there, I have probably seen 10 people quit, even people that have gotten hired and quit within the amount of time that I started working there. Some people can't handle some of these things that happen to them or can't handle seeing it happen to others. It's really a field that you have to know if you can do it or not. And I feel lucky that I, I haven't I haven't had any burnout yet. Just really important to know that there's a separation between the person and the mental illness. Getting the experience and you know having these things happen to you and knowing that you can come back the next day and still do the same job that you did the day before, when you know that this this kind of work is is good for you and and you're meant for this kind of work because there's a lot of people I know that, you know, when I tell them what happened to me at work that day, they always say, I don't know how you do it. It's just important to know where your boundaries are. And it's super hard to get people to stay in this field because it is hard. It is taxing and cognitively draining. You just kind of have to fight through it and think about, you know, what you're really doing for these people and know that this is the place for them and you're doing everything that you can. And even if somebody acts out, it's really about helping people, and that's what we do. We always hear one side of the story. We always hear about the patient or about a person. We can hear their stories, but we never hear about the person that takes care of them. <laughs> right. And, th- and that was one thing why I really wanted to reach out was because there's a lot of people that have this view based on them being there for just a couple hours or a visitor coming and they feel that the person is neglected or not not having enough engagement with other people or socializing, but we do everything that we can, encourage people as much as we can, um, but you know, you never what happened before that. So, you know, the rest of that day after that happened to me with patient H, I couldn't do much. I, I was kind of 
stuck in my own thoughts and a little bit afraid to go back out. The rest of that day, I was kind of useless. I wasn't being engaged with other people. But the staff are people too. You know, these things affect us. And some days when we have really hard days, it is harder to go out there and do the best job that we can because they always say, keep your personal issues out of work. But sometimes your personal issues are in work in this type of field. So it's hard to separate them sometimes and be the best person you can be. So there are days that are off and it is hard to see that or encompass all that when you are a visitor or a patient. It's it's kind of impossible to separate your work and personal lives. I mean, some of us are better at separating the two it's hard. I mean, if you're having a bad day at home, you, you, it's, you can try to envelop yourself at work, but if you have a bad day at work, you can always spread across the both. So it's hard. Yeah. And especially when, you know, you can't leave early. It's a hospital and it's running 24 seven. If something bad happens to you at the beginning of the shift, sometimes it's okay. And that's what your coworkers are there for too. You know, they understand that these things happen and you, you got to take a break sometime. It's important to think about the staff too are people and we're not machines walking around telling people what to do or engaging them socially. You know, we, if bad things happen to us there, it, it does affect us to some extent, empathizing with people that work in this field. How important is it for facilities such as yours and insurance companies to continue taking care of people? I think it's super important because there's not another place for these people to go. Other facilities don't necessarily have the training or know what to expect. But when you've worked in a field like this for so long or have studied it for so long, you know what to expect, what kind of things to go in doing and helping these people. So, you know, every day I go into work assuming the worst. I assume that somebody's going to hit me, that my glasses are going to be broken and somebody's going to throw poop at me because that has happened and I've seen it happen. But then, you know, when, when you come out in a day and none of those things happen to you, it's, it's such a relief and such a good day. And you come out, come out of work leaving happy. And then when those things do happen to you, you say, well, that's just what the job is. And when you expect it to happen, it's okay. It's something that's going to um, you know, keep you down the rest of the night or anything like that. That's, that's what I tell a lot of people is when you leave your house in the morning, you just have to lower your expectations and everything that happens that day is a good thing. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, whenever, yeah, if something like that happens to me, I just, it's just a normal day. I have ex- expected it and not tried to raise my expectations for anything better to happen. Is the night shift or day shift better or worse? Is there any difference? It's hard to say because night shift, majority of people are sleeping, but there's always that one patient that doesn't sleep and is completely acting out. I would say night shift has probably done the most restraints, which may be kind of surprising. And day shift has probably done, you know, about the same as the shift that I work on, but I would say night shift probably has it most difficult with the patients that act out. I would say each shift kind of has their own little thing that they like about it. Day shift has all this stuff going on, so that's when all the upper level staff are there. Most of the groups are going on. Evening shift, the shift that I work is a lot more laid back, although we do have some scheduled groups. And the doctor is still there until about halfway through the shift. We can engage more, do more of the things that they want to do, rather than all the scheduled stuff that's going on during the day. Some nights you have everybody sleep on the whole night and can just work on the paperwork that has to be done and talking and hanging out with your coworkers. But then some nights you get, you know, that difficult patient that won't sleep and is causing a ruckus on the unit. What other things did you want to bring up while we were talking? 
I think the only other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on was funding. Like I had mentioned, we were non-for-profit, so it didn't matter how many patients we have, but other places are for-profit, so they like to keep their units full. They don't really turn people away if they're wanting to get admitted, but I think a lot of that affects the turnover rate and payment for the staff. Um, you know, we are helping people, and that's what we really want. The things that we do and some of the things that you don't expect to do or aren't told that you're going to do, you have to do it. And sometimes the pay is not what you signed up for with what, it, what the things that you're having to do. I felt that way my entire life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff I just, I never expected to do it. And the pay necessarily doesn't line up with those kind of things. So I think funding is more important and just to get more people help talk about it more that huge thing with mental illness, it's stigmatized. People have their views about it. It's still taboo to talk about. So it's important to get that word out there and get more people interested in helping these people who are suffering with mental illness because places like this are so short-staffed. There's not enough people interested in the field or feeling like uh, they can do it. But although there are those days that are really hard, like I talked about, there are days that are so good because you see somebody make a complete recovery and you feel like you were a part of that. It's a really rewarding job. Even though you have those bad days, you get to see what, what a change in someone's life you're making. Funding more, more facilities for these people to go, more opportunities for them to seek treatment, seek outpatient treatment as well, and just talking about it more, getting it more in the open because it's still taboo and stigmatized. So it's perfect you came on my podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was sort of the main things I wanted to cover, give some stories out there of kind of a day in the life of a psychiatric technician or nurse um, that people can understand it more and know more from the other side as it's more reported from a patient's side. Oh, when you wrote to me, I was almost giddy. I was like, yes, <laughs> I want to talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just so happy that you invited me to come on because it's so underreported or talked about from the different perspective. You know, you always want to hear about the cool stories or, and although I did share some, it's, it's important to know that there's so much more to um, a stay in a psychiatric facility than what, what's talked about or what's shown. Absolutely. The few times I've stepped foot in a few, it's always been not what I expected. And it's always been more of a hospital type environment. Do you have any uh, questions for me or anything? Anything you're dying to ask? <laughs> I guess one thing, maybe it is a little bit personal, but with your brother, was he often going through mental hospitals? You have mentioned a few times on some of your episodes that it was undiagnosed for a while, dealing with it. Yeah, he, at a very young age, the first memory I have is him waking me up in the middle of the night and saying, don't open the bathroom door. And I said, okay, uh, is everything all right? And I was, a, I was, you know, maybe like 10 or 11 years old and he's 15, 16. And he says, a thousand ninjas will jump out if you open the bathroom door. Wow. And he wasn't kidding. He wasn't joking. He wasn't trying to be funny. But right. again, I'm like 10 years old, middle of the night, not quite processing what's going on here. By the end of high school, his high school career, he uh, dropped out did get his GED, but he was not really connected. He would just do whatever he wanted. Uh, he was always in and out of the house. My mom was constantly kicking him out for drugs and, and whatnot. 
and and really i think that was his self-medicating because he was not diagnosed until about 18 and i think it was a counselor or i i I don't know because again this was he was 18 so that would mean i was 13 (laughs) um they said that he was borderline schizophrenic which i don't know what that means i think he pretty much was and then when he uh got older it just pretty much got progressively worse and he uh, would live in like halfway houses and uh, section eight apartments where he would be attacked by other residents or he would just go off on a tangent and run out into the middle of the street. He was an alcoholic and he was on lots of prescription pills. And uh, eventually he started to, I guess, get it together uh, yeah. and kind of get back on track and he got a, a stable place, uh, an apartment that he was at for, you know, maybe a year, which was, you know, crazy. Cause normally he'd be thrown out in like a month. And I had deassociated myself with him because it was just chaos and I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Like one, you know, one night he showed up at my door just in the middle of the night asking me for money and I didn't even know that he knew where I lived because that's how much we did not associate with each other. So it was a little scary to me because I stopped talking to him and then he would just show up and demand money or demand a ride somewhere pretty much off and on the streets. But he was getting his life together. But again, the last maybe five to 10 years of his life, I had very little interaction with him. And my sister was interacting with him on a more regular basis. And uh, she didn't hear from him for a couple days. And for whatever reason, she knew something was terribly wrong. And she was pretty sure that he was dead. But she didn't want to believe it because, again, the last couple of years, he was turning it around. He was doing much better, according to my sister. And she went to his apartment and got in the door. And it was smelled horrible because it was, you know, this crummy apartment complex in downtown uh, or midtown Kansas City and it's the middle of summer and she found him on the uh, kitchen floor and he'd been dead for a couple days and toxicology reports would find a lot of antipsychotics in his system not enough for an overdose really but just a bad mix like he shouldn't have taken one with another and were those prescribed to him they were all prescribed to him but he would forget if he took one and then take another, or he would go and get one prescription filled from one pharmacy and then go get it filled from another pharmacy because this is, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. They didn't quite have that database to check (laughs) and they didn't have that same database that would alert pharmacists or doctors. Hey, he's on this prescription. You should prescribe him that one. You know, there might be a conflict. I don't think his death was intentional, but I'm torn between blaming doctors and pharmacists over prescribing him or his mental illness of not knowing that he's taken something that's not going to go well with something else. But he'd pretty much been that way all his life and it's just everlasting struggle. What an awful, awful situation that has probably put you and your sister in, but and that's something that maybe many people don't think about too, is the effect that people like this have on their family, their close family, extended family. 
especially when you feel like there's not much you can do about it. You know, they have to get the help for themselves. And here's the problem is I just thought my brother's a junkie and makes bad decisions and I hate him for it for a decade or two. That's how I felt about him. Mm-hmm. Never acknowledging there's something wrong. And some people, although in your case, it seems that it was more unknown to you, but some people just refuse to believe it or don't support family members that are suffering with these things and, and kind of just throw it off to the side as something that they can deal with themselves, something that they don't need any support or need the extra help or attention and kind of just dismiss the mental illness as something else. Yeah. And I, I just, I just had no understanding. It wasn't that I was trying not to acknowledge it. I just didn't really get it. And it might sound stupid, but I was naive. (laughs) Yeah. And well, and if you don't pay attention to these things, especially, you know, I feel like it just in the past 10 years, it's been more talked about. But at that time, too, it it wasn't talked about as much. So if that was your only exposure to it, it, it's how are you supposed to know what to do or what's going on? And my my sister still suffers greatly she's i would say bipolar has ptsd you know i see her go through her roller coaster all the time and now i still get frustrated i still have my patience is short sometimes but i definitely feel like i'm much more understanding now than i ever have been with her actions and and her inactions in life yeah it's hard when you're when you're close with people to um, attribute it to something else. You know, working in a place like that, it's really easy to attribute it to mental illness. But when you've known somebody for so long, and if bad things have happened or relationships have gone through struggles, it's really hard to disassociate those kind of things to the person and associate it with yeah. something that they can't control. In my my first interview with Tiffany way back in the early days of the peripheral when she said that I've done some really shitty things and I'm remorseful because I didn't mean it. That was an eye opener for me. She she might not realize that, but that was a serious eye opener for me. Like, yeah, you can do crappy, shitty things and it just happens and you're not in control. And then you feel bad because you're like, I can't believe I did that. Just like when you were talking about some of the patients at your hospital, you say they lash out at me they did something and then i tell them later and they're you know they apologize you know they didn't mean to i think that's the most important thing to remember dealing with people like this uh people in your place of work or in your personal life is that there is a difference between their person and their mental illness and it completely changes their actions and thoughts and- absolutely good conversation <laughs> no i really appreciate everything you just shared because it was every single conversation I have with anyone that comes on the show I learned something (laughs) I'm not you know people think oh Justin's experienced the world and he knows everything no (laughs) I feel like I don't know shit and I'm always seeking knowledge and wisdom so you know well I'm glad that I you know could share this side of you know working in a place like this or dealing with patients like this it was good Thank you so much for doing this. I, it was really nice to kind of talk about some of this stuff, and I'm looking forward to listening to it. Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a heads up um, when, I'm, when I'm publishing it. Uh, sometimes the heads up is a day before. Sometimes it's 15 minutes before. Um, <laughs> but I always give a heads up. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. 
No, thank you, Sarah. It was awesome. And I think it's going to be a very uh, enlightening and solid episode. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This episode was edited by my new editor, Nicole. She is awesome and helping me out immensely. I'm also working with a another organization who will be helping me out with marketing and possibly getting me some well-known speakers to come on the show, help promote, and who have very tragic or motivational stories. So look forward to that. And thank you again for listening.